Hello, and welcome to the Steps Podcast with me, Boone Christensen, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. The more I do this work, the more I realize how truly subjective mental health progress is. The definition of your optimal state of mental health depends very much on where you're at right now, mentally and emotionally, as well as your environment. This post posits a general definition of an optimal mental health state and optimal environment, while recognizing that many people can only hope to achieve the best state in suboptimal environments. And I'll also give some examples of treatment courses. An optimal state, mental health state for humans, would be characterized by high frontal lobe brain activity. This means a state of high awareness of the past, present, and future, meaning you don't have any need to avoid thoughts or memories. This is coupled with low stress activation. You feel low anxiety about the past, present, and the future. You have the ability to relate and cooperate with other humans um, in reasonable doses. You have high critical thinking, creativity, and problem-solving skills. All of your emotions are allowed to run their course, meaning you feel allowed to feel anger, shame, guilt, sadness, fear, jealousy, resentment, all the emotions are allowed to happen. And they come in manageable doses and are proportional and adaptive to your present situation. There's a strong sense of agency, meaning you can consider many options in various scenarios and act deliberately. So the environment to foster such an optimal mental health state would need to meet all of your basic human needs, food, water, shelter, social interaction, that is real social interaction, and safety. Resource abundance requires little urgency. There's no need to compulsively hoard things, or stuff feelings, or to try and extract pleasure from rare moments, or to make impulsive decisions. There's no need for symptomatic behaviors to meet those unmet needs, because there are no unmet needs. The but the environment it's not is not free from adversity but the adversity is either chosen through self-exertion right you're you're creating stress for yourself because you want to through the testing of protective boundaries from authorities uh, but not threats there are no threats there are only boundaries which you can learn more about in the podcast episode about boundaries or the adversity is due to random coincidence meaning accidents happen. But the adversity does not come from others' symptomatic behaviors, meaning others are not projecting their mental illness or their anxiety onto you. When stress is experienced, there's always the option to discharge it and to recover from it, and this fosters emotional strength and resilience. So, in this optimal environment, it is adaptive to have low-intensity emotions and high cognitive skills. And with the physical and mental strength that someone would develop in this environment, the more adaptable that person would be if the conditions could become or would become less hospitable. Strong, healthy humans can manipulate their environment to create hospitable conditions. For example, if you, um, if a mentally unhealthy person is stranded on a desert island, chances are they would not adapt very well because they're already in a vulnerable spot. They can't think very clearly. They feel very stressed. And so uh, they would probably suffer. 
but a strong, healthy person with a strong mental state would be able to analyze the situation, use those energy reserves to build up shelter and find food, and perhaps could thrive if the resources were sufficient, even though the environment wasn't the same as the one where this person came from. Outpatient mental health therapy allows clients to experience a change in environment with the addition of a safe place to go discharge and recover from stress, as well as to learn skills to manipulate their environment. The quantity of this dosage is usually 50 minutes per week, with the strength of the dose depending on the skill and health of the therapist, not the client's ability to be a good patient. Obviously, this requires a whole lot more discussion, maybe a whole nother episode, but I won't go into it now. I'll just say that it is the therapist's job to make therapy good, not the patient's job. Intensive outpatient therapy gives a larger dose, perhaps three to five hours a week for three to five days a week of therapy. Partial hospitalization is the next level up, which has people going in for about eight hours a day. And then there's residential treatment or rehab, which provides a 24-7 change in environment to foster new adaptations quickly and effectively. With enough exposure to a safe and effective growing place, it's assumed that humans will progress towards that optimal state that we talked about and influence their environment to match their state. The process is circular. When you get stronger in therapy, it makes it easier for you to change your environment which makes it easier to get stronger. For example, you come to therapy, we process some of your anxiety, we teach you about boundaries, and then you go out and you remove some of the toxic influences in your life, which helps you become stronger, which helps you make more changes, and so on. And what is this? what more can we say about this strengthening process? I think a really good analogy is physical strength. To increase the strength of your muscle fibers, you need to strain and break them down to a reasonable degree, and then rest and nourish them appropriately for new fibers to grow. If you break them down too much or too fast, then you'll likely just get injured and your muscles will actually weaken. But if you don't exert them enough, then they don't grow at all. And you need different things at different steps of the process. For example, You should only exert and strain your muscles when you have the resources to recover effectively, meaning you shouldn't go have a heavy workout if you're going to starve after. You should rest when your muscles are strained and exhausted, not continue exerting because that will just lead to injury. And, you, of course, you need that nourishment after your exertion to allow for new growth. Doing any of those steps at the wrong time can lead to injury or weakness. If you're exerting when you should be resting, or if you're eating while in the middle of a workout, right? Like you shouldn't be eating a a pizza in the middle of a heavy workout. uh, That will just cause problems, right? And send you backwards. The proper sequence follows a U-shape. You start in a relatively good place. You feel the pain of exertion. You rest from that exertion. Then you feel the pain of soreness as your your muscles uh, build, build new fibers. And then you feel better. You get back to a good place that was stronger than where you were before. Our emotions actually run the same course. However, strengthening emotions is a bit more complicated than strengthening muscles in that it includes more unconscious or involuntary processes. 
it takes effort to keep your emotions from running their course, right? Because they, they always want to run their course, but humans do a, do a good job of kind of stuffing them up and blocking that process. Whereas when you reduce restraint, like you do in the therapy room, you come in, you sit down, you have no distractions, no stimulus, and your emotions are just going to flow. The U model illustrates the course, uh, and we'll need to look at the, at the book diagrams on the blog for this. It is a, a picture of the brain that shows those three basic levels of upper brain logic, middle brain anxiety, and lower brain depressive state, and it divides it into a dissociative side and a mindful side, and then, and then a line that demonstrates the course that an emotion takes as it moves out of dissociation um, down through those states. I'll just go ahead and read that here. If we exist in a relatively safe and resource-rich environment, then our emotional functions will naturally flow towards high frontal lobe activity. That means that if we cease to distract or cope, the emotions will begin to run their course through a painful field of non-rational or dissociated fight-or-flight. These feelings might be catastrophizing, defensiveness, victim mentality, or self-criticism, which will then move in, might move into a state of dissociated freeze or depression, which comes with hopelessness, maybe suicidal thoughts, numbness, and shame then over into a rational or mindful depressive state where you might feel exhaustion or submission, up into a state of more mindful anxiety, might be characterized by grief or appropriate levels of fear or anger, and you'll finish up in a greater state of awareness and compassion for yourself and others. And these are some of the common ways that people move through that you sequence. So, one example. They might work through an entire sequence over the course of a single therapy session. This is often the case for like singular traumatic events or like individual phobias of things. A person might come in in a relatively stable state, but say like I want to treat my fear of dogs or or spiders or something. And we expose them to that angering or frightening thing. Um it's also often like a single traumatic event that is unrelated to other traumatic events. They expose themselves to that thing, their bodies tense up, shut down, and then restart in the presence of the stimulus. We don't take the stimulus away, their body just lets the emotion run its course, and their brain recodes the stimulus. They become less afraid of it because they didn't die or get hurt after the exposure. Or a person might come in already somewhere on the sequence, perhaps they're just down in the depressed state or in the, in the mindful, anxious state on the other side, and then they just need to finish up the sequence. They just need a good cry or something, and that will help them feel better. Um, or, another example, they might take several sessions or many sessions to allow themselves to feel, to allow themselves to even start the process to feel the anger or anxiety that's under the surface. Our bodies need to feel safe for our emotions to flow. And so some people need to take a long time getting used to even the therapy room or the therapist to get that process going. I have seen this take years for some case severe trauma profiles. 
some people might come in and you know kind of beat around the bush of what they're afraid of and then the maybe the therapist will expose them to it and it just sends them right into freeze um, and then they just like steadily have to recover from that freeze or they might come in saying I have a lot of things I know I have to expose myself to and it's going to make me depressed when I admit the reality of these things but I'm just going to do it and these people essentially induce depressive episodes that can last for several months because of the the quantity of stuff that they expose themselves to in therapy but they come out of it with increased awareness and maturity proportional to the amount of time that they spent in that depressive state another course might be that they cycle between painful emotions and painful freeze or depressive states and they don't feel like they're getting anywhere this pattern demonstrates the triggering of conflicting survival responses. For example, you're trying to move through your depressive state, but depression itself triggers another kind of anxiety. Maybe you have traumas related to suicidal ideation that you felt while in depressive states. Or you may feel panicked as you feel depression creeping into your body because Maybe it's not okay to take a semester off of school or off of work, or you're afraid of how society or certain family members will see you if you allow yourselves to, if you allow yourself to feel those emotions, right? So like certain emotions can trigger other emotions and they enter into conflict, <clears throat> which seems like it's sending you back to the top of the sequence every time. We need to process those different conflicting emotions in, in their own sequence, meaning that we might need to process the trauma of that suicidal episode that you had a few years ago before you let yourself enter depression again. Or we need to process that fear of getting judged by your colleagues for taking some time off of work before we can allow that depression to run its course. Either way, we can evaluate for that and process those emotions in their own sequence. There are many different courses, but they all follow the same principle that you must break down before you get stronger. Impediments to progress are the things preventing the flow through different emotional states. And here are some more examples. Maybe you're trying to move through the non-rational emotion stage, but people keep throwing logic at you. They keep trying to fix your problem. They keep trying to tell you that you shouldn't be reasons why you shouldn't be feeling this way. And it's just not helpful. It just keeps blocking your emotion. Maybe you're trying to rest in that frozen or depressive state, but people keep asking things of you, or people keep trying to pull you out of it prematurely. Maybe you're afraid to feel angry or hopeless, or some other emotion, and you've had experiences of being punished, shamed, ignored, or invalidated for having certain feelings. We will have to process those traumas and make sure your environment is actually safe to have those feelings before you can recover. Maybe you're afraid of processing emotions or doing therapy the wrong way, which is a very common trait with OCD diagnoses. We would have to address that anxiety first and help you feel safe that it's okay to make mistakes, to do this process imperfectly before you can effectively do the process. Or you're afraid of being in a threatening environment soon after being vulnerable in therapy. As is the case with physical surgery, you should not get emotional surgery if you can't be in a safe place to recover afterwards. 
Threatening environments are important to consider in outpatient therapy. Sometimes the most adaptive thing to do is not develop greater awareness, vulnerability, honesty, and calmness. In a war zone, it's adaptive to develop PTSD symptoms of hypervigilance, irritability, and poor sleep. You don't want to be calm and philosophical in this environment if you're going to survive. Or, if you're stranded on a lifeboat in the middle of the open ocean, it's better to depress your bodily functions and brain activity to preserve your water and calories. You shouldn't be composing symphonies or doing math problems or doing P90X in the middle of your lifeboat, because that would just waste all your resources. If you have to go home to emotionally abusive people after our therapy session today, then we have to be careful that we don't put you in a place to receive more trauma. Maybe we shouldn't send you home with eyes puffy from crying if that's going to induce ridicule or shaming from your family members, right? Depending on the situation, we might need to help you process emotions a little bit, then strategize how to set boundaries or to avoid toxic people or situations. Or we might help you compartmentalize or voluntarily dissociate from painful thoughts and emotions until you can effectively leave the environment. For example, we might help you lock, like, pack, um, pack up those emotions and traumas to process until you've saved up enough money to move out of your parents' house or to leave that toxic relationship or roommate situation, whatever it happens to be. This process might be akin to paddling upstream in our river model, but the situation might call for it. Progress might not involve reducing dissociative or depressive symptoms, but actually increasing them. This brings us to the key point of this episode, which is that humans adapt to their situations, just as all animals do. Symptoms are adaptations. They exist to help someone reduce the pain of their situation, at least in the short term. If symptoms persist, it's because the environment cannot actually accommodate change. For example, if a meth addict can't find someone to help them process their intense and substantial trauma and contain them safely while their body goes through that excruciating withdrawal, and then have a safe place to recover and have new validating experiences, that person must continue medicating with meth, or the alternative is to be overcome with suicidal or psychotic feelings, right? You only use a medication as strong as methamphetamine to treat a pain or injury to match, right? And if you don't have other resources on hand, safe places and people, then of course you're going to keep using your strong medication because what else are you going to do? <clears throat> if a person with OCD is getting nowhere in talk therapy, it may be that the therapist keeps trying to appease their anxiety with formulas and answers rather than the person sit with uncertainty, right? The therapist might be enabling this anxiety to exist because it keeps administering in, they keep administering an ineffective medication, right? The reassurance. The, the person with OCD can't adapt to a new environment of uncertainty while the drug of choice is still being administered, the reassurance. This is an issue that I've personally had to work with um, improving as a therapist with, with many OCD clients. If a person is chronically depressed, it may be that they feel ashamed of being depressed, which can actually keep the depression from running its, its course. And the people around 
might be trying to just fix it or yank them out of depression inadvertently, which reinforces that shame message. It's a double bind. And guess what the brain's adaptive response is to double binds? That's right, more depression. The depression will likely end when the environment will allow it to actually happen. Meaning this person is depressed, and it's okay for them to be depressed, and that depression will run its course. But if that person feels depressed, and it keeps trying to you know, run, run its natural course down the river, but everyone keeps trying to push that person up the river, then they're just going to stay in the same spot in the river. So, back to, that, back to the, the title of this episode, How Do We Measure Progress?, It really depends on what you need, on how you need to adapt to your environment. You may be ready for a temporary increase of your anxiety as we expose you to things that you've been avoiding. You may need to dissociate to better adapt to your hostile environment, right? Like, we might not want to help you become more vulnerable and emotive in this dangerous situation that you live in. Or you might need to increase your depression to help you digest some of these recent stressors that you've been experiencing. Hopefully your therapist can help you conceptualize your course. Thank you so much.